Welcome to the Chi Alpha at UNC Chapel Hill podcast. This podcast is designed to help you grow through our three foundations, devoted disciples, deep friendships, and deliberate servants. We hope you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Good evening. I hope you all are doing well. Uh, tonight we are closing out our series on the lessons of the life of David. Now, if you've been following along at any point with our narrative, up to this point we've learned a great deal about the success of David's life. But tonight we're going to be talking about something that, quite frankly, I wish we didn't have to talk about at all. If I were a writer of the Bible, I would have skipped over this part. I wouldn't have even included it. Uh, perhaps I would have written something a little bit more heroic of David's life or something a little bit more noble of his life. But we have to talk about this uh, thing tonight because it's in the Bible. Not only is it in the Bible, but I believe that the story we're going to talk about is also so important to us today as people who are Christ followers because it shows us a discipline that is regularly needed in our lives. If we hope to follow more closely to Jesus in our time here on earth, we need to get this and take it to heart. We need to learn and understand repentance. And the story that we're going to be talking about tonight is David sleeping with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. We're going to start in chapter 11. Verse 1 says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now from the very onset of this story, something's kind of off, something's amiss. At a time when kings are supposed to go off and fight and do their kingly duties, David, Jerusalem's king, is hanging back. He sends Joab, his right-hand man, and his envoy and his soldiers to go and fight. And he hangs back. Now, by this time in David's life, he's no longer a young man like we've known him to be in our previous sermons that we've done on on his life. Um, he is over 50 years old, and it would seem at first glance and reading the story that um, he wants to t- step back and take it easy for a while. And this is actually a mistake in David's life, and we'll find out why here shortly. Verse 2 says this, One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Can you believe that? David, heroic David, does this terrible thing. David sees this beautiful woman and asks someone about her. David's servant, we don't know who he was or what he was doing, but we can almost see the the gears turning in this servant's mind as he's starting to put two and two together, as he's 
having this conversation with David, it's almost like he says, David, I know what you're thinking. This is Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. She's a daughter of Eliam. Don't do it, David. This is a mistake. She's married. And yet, David's lust gets the best of him. Word gets back to him from Bathsheba. I'm pregnant. Now, looking at the story at first glance, we might think, where in the world did this come from? This is so unlike David to do something like this. There's no other story where he takes someone's wife away and um, sleeps with them so unlawfully. But if we look back at the whole narrative of David's life, we see back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, this peculiar instance where David takes more wives and concubines. Now, there's a lot wrong with that statement, but the thing that is most consequential for David is that he's king, and kings fell under certain laws. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, there are conditions laid out for the king. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And so, for David, he had no problem getting rid of the horses. Anytime they went and conquered and um, achieved victory, they made sure that they slew the horses to not be tempted with such military power and strength. Any gold and silver that they got from uh the spoils of victory, David made sure that he dedicated that to the Lord's temple. But this thing of taking many wives, for some reason, that was an issue for David. He had a real hard problem letting go of that. He had an issue of uh, relinquishing uh, that part of, of, of victory. And so, looking at the whole story of David, this was not necessarily a sudden explosion of moral failure in David's life, but this was a subtle erosion of his heart. This was a long time coming. Now, it's also important to note here that the scriptures never even mention that this was Bathsheba's fault for you know, taking, taking a bath and bathing and taking care of herself. The, the entire blame is on David at this point, and, and David alone. So to summarize the rest of chapter 11, David realizes that he's got a big problem. He's got a humongous problem. He has slept with another man's wife. Think, what a dummy, right? David thinks he can cover it up by getting Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come in from the battle and to go and visit her. And so that's what he does. He sends word to Joab. Joab releases Uriah to come home. And uh, upon getting back into town, David says, Uriah, so good to see you. How's the battle going? Oh, David, the, the battle's going great. Uh, things, things are going well. We're, we're getting new ground, getting victory. David says, oh, that's so awesome. That's, that's great to hear. Thanks, thanks for the report. By the way, while you're in, why don't you go and see your wife Bathsheba? Why don't you go and visit her and, and say hello? I'm sure you guys have been swapping letters in and out uh, while, you've, while you've been gone. It'd be great for you to just go and visit her. And 
David thinks he's taking care of it, that Uriah leaves David's presence, and he, David thinks that's that. But David finds out that the next morning, Uriah never went home. Instead, he sleeps outside the palace doors on a mat. David thinks, this is not taking care of my problem. I'm going to try again. And so David brings Uriah into his palace and prepares this wonderful banquet for Uriah. They, they eat a lot of food. They, they tell stories. I'm sure David tells uh, Uriah the story about how he conquered Goliath. And um, all the while, while they're eating and swapping stories, the drinks are coming in. Wine is being poured into the glasses. And Uriah's drinking the wine. And David makes sure that Uriah drinks even more wine and even more wine to the point where David is trying to get Uriah drunk. What is going on? This is God's king and he's trying to get a man drunk. And so after Uriah's had too many drinks, David says, Hey, I know you're going back to battle tomorrow. Why don't you go and visit your wife tonight and make sure that you guys get to see each other before you head back to battle. And he sends Uriah out. And again, because Uriah is so loyal and so faithful, not only to David, but to um, his, his comrades, his friends, his brothers on the battlefield, that he sleeps on the mat once again. And he says, how can I, how can I go and, and do this thing? How can I go and visit my wife when all of my fellow soldiers are out on the field sleeping in the sleeping on the grass, not getting to be with their families. How can I do such a thing? And the next morning comes and Uriah goes back. But before Uriah goes back to the battlefield, David handwrites a letter and gives it to Uriah to give it to Joab. And in that letter, which Uriah delivers to Joab, the letter basically says, make sure Uriah dies. Wow. What a thing, right? And so through battle strategy, Joab sends Uriah to the front of the line where the battle is the fiercest and withdraws some of the soldiers back from the fiercest part of the battle to make sure Uriah does in fact die. An innocent man died. Word gets back to David, the deed is done. But word also gets back to Bathsheba that her husband has died. And at the end of chapter 11, we read this. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then look at this last line here. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Have you ever tried to, to cover something up? Maybe hide something from your parents or your grandparents or guardians or you know even even your roommate i was never able to hide something from my parents for for very long now growing up in school i didn't get into a lot of fights i wasn't necessarily a, a troubled child but i did have skirmishes from time to time with some of my my friends and i remember one time particularly in middle school that i had a bit of a, a fight with one of my friends. 
I don't know why he was doing it, but my friend that day was being extremely annoying. He was being absolutely obnoxious to me. And he would be pestering me. He wouldn't leave me alone. I don't know why he was doing it, but he just would not let up. And we were out in the hallway waiting for a class change. And he was just, again, just being so annoying and dreadful to me that day. And underneath my arm, I had my trusty black five-star trapper keeper. Uh, this thing, you know, had the had the zipper around, it had the three rings inside. You put your papers in there. You could put your pens and pencils. Uh, you could also, you know, fit fit a textbook in there and just carry it carry it around. And I, ironically, I had my civics book inside zipped up. And I say ironically because I take my five-star trapper keeper and I just bash my friend in the head two or three times really hard and then I get away <laughs> um, we go into class and my friend doesn't retaliate at that time because I I think he was just stunned by what happened that I take, took my trapper keeper and, and hit him in the head and got away so quickly um, we don't talk we don't say anything for the rest of the day and I think the the matter's over it's, it's done he's finally left me alone but, unbeknownst to me, a teacher was in the hallway and saw my friend take this five-star beating from me. And also unbeknownst to me, my dad, who was a maintenance worker for the county school systems, was working at my school that day. And before I got home, before my dad got home, he already knew that this exchange had occurred. There were other instances in my time in middle school, high school, even elementary, where my dad knew things about me before I could even tell him, before he even got home from work. Now, to wrap that story up, yes, we did make amends, my friend and I, we, we made up. But yes, I also got grounded. David, he thinks he's covered up this sin. He thinks he's pulled a fast one over someone. He thinks he's fooled everybody. And we might think that David enjoyed life, that he had a good time, but this was not the case whatsoever. For David, this ate away at him. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, it says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. This was something that ate away at David's soul. The fact that he had unconfessed sin in his life, and the fact that he left it unconfessed for almost a year. That was how long it took. Now thankfully the story doesn't necessarily end there. We read in chapter 12 that the Lord sends a man named Nathan to David. And Nathan speaks in this parable and to David and basically tells a story to David. And he comes to David and he says, let me tell you a story. There's a poor man and a rich man. The rich man, of course, has this nice, wonderful house, beautiful garden, lots of sheep, lots of cattle, good food, good drinks great guy, you know, has has everything that he needs. This poor man, on the other hand, has maybe a one or two room shack, 
not much to look at. Um, barely gets by after each month's paycheck. And this poor man, he's got one little ewe lamb, this one little young lamb that he has with him. And this, this little young lamb, this, this poor man treats it so well. He feeds it at his table. And really this, this poor man, he raises it up almost as if like it's his own daughter. Well, a traveler is coming in and this traveler, we don't know who he is, but this traveler comes in and visits the rich man. As custom would have it, anytime someone would come and visit, much like it is for us today, you know, we, we offer our food, we offer drinks, we offer our hospitality. And this rich man, he doesn't want to give up any of his sheep or cattle. So instead, he takes the poor man's little young lamb, slaughters it, and prepares it as a meal for the traveler. Nathan's telling David this story. David hears these words that the rich man takes the poor man's little young lamb and kills it. And when he hears that his rage goes to 100%, he bursts out, this man must die. He must pay four times as much for this injustice. Now, it's important to note here that if such a story were to be true, there was no law that said that a man had to die for stealing another man's lamb. But have you ever noticed that when you haven't dealt with the sin in your own life, you tend to overreact to other people's sins? David says he must die. And then Nathan, in verse 7 of chapter 12, delivers this blow to David. You are the man. You are the one that stole the poor little lamb from the poor man. You are the man, David. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan reminds David that absolutely everything David has in his life is by the grace of God. It's all grace. He didn't need to go and act so foolishly. He didn't need to do something so wicked. But he does. The unconfessed sin ate away at him. And thankfully for David, God sent Nathan to confront him. Let me ask you, do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have someone who can look you dead in the eye and tell you like it is? Are we willing enough to listen to that friend, that life group leader, that staff member, that professor, or even a parent? We need to have enough humility to receive that rebuke. 
We need to have the courage to stand up to those closest to us and say, dude, you're blowing it. What are you doing? Why are you acting like a fool? Stop it. We need to be Nathans. But we also need to have Nathans in our lives. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So even though David confessed his sin against the Lord, and the Lord did in fact forgive him, there were consequences. I wish any time that I sinned and I messed up, and I ask forgiveness, I wish that that was the end of the matter. But any time that you mess up, yes, there's going to be wholeness. Yes, there's going to be restoration. David didn't die by the hand of the Lord. But there were consequences. And there's consequences every time we sin, every time we act disobedient. And it's not because the Lord hates us. It's because the Lord is trying to teach us something. The Lord is trying to train us into being holy people holy and good. By the Lord's grace, the Lord removes David's sin because the Lord is gracious and merciful and David's heart had become repentant. He had received that word from Nathan. I don't know about you, but it has become harder and harder in our time to become repentant to one another, let alone God. We're people today where we like to be right about everything. We don't want to seem like we're foolish or seem like we're dumb. Um, we would rather double down if we're wrong and try and spin whatever it is um, that we've been wrong about. We'd rather spin it so that we look better and better and the people who accuse us of being wrong look dumber and more foolish. Let me ask you, when's the last time when's the last time you made a sincere apology to someone? When's the last time you confessed and repented of sin in your life to God? Until you realize the value of your worth and your life to God and what God has done not only to give you a new life but to break the power of sin off of you, you won't recognize the need to confess and repent. In Psalm 51, David wrote the song when Nathan visited him. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David knew his relationship with the Lord. It took a verbal slap in the face from his friend Nathan to get him to wake up to his sin and realize the terrible thing he had done. 
David desired more than anything to have his relationship right with the Lord once again. And you and I, we are in a sin-filled world with brokenness all around us. As the old hymn goes, we are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. Satan has laid all these traps around us in this life. And most of the time, he doesn't get us with the big ones. But with the subtleties, with the ones that we barely notice. Subtle erosions lead to sudden explosions. And this is why confession and repentance are such gifts to us. They are meant as tools to guide us back to the heart of our good and loving God. What is confession? It's simply telling God that you've done wrong against him. And if you've done wrong against a friend or against a family member, it's coming clean with that person and making amends. Whatever you need to do to restore that relationship, you do it. Because you've had a change of heart. What is repentance? It's seeing the path that you were on, the brokenness that you were on, and turning away from it and turning toward the love of God for a better life. As we wrap up the series, I want to ask if you noticed any subtle erosions of your heart that you need to let go of. Maybe for some of you, you're like David, and you need to deal with your lust. For others, maybe you're dealing with control issues, or pride, or apathy. I honestly don't know what it could be, but I do know that if it isn't God that is holding your heart and his love and joy over your life, you will continuously struggle with finding satisfaction in anything else the world might offer you. And I'm not just talking about while you're here at UNC. I'm not talking about while you're in, in school. I'm talking about in your life when you go to work your 9 to 5 job or your 9 to 9 job or however many hours you're working in your job. I'm talking about when you're married. I'm talking about when you're out with your friends. I'm talking about when you're in your 50s and your 60s and your 70s. You need to allow God to have control. You need to yield to the love and the goodness of God and let Him have your heart because the subtle erosions will lead to sudden explosions. For David, his situation, um, God sent Nathan to set him straight. Good news. For us and whatever sin we might find ourselves wrapped up in, God sent Jesus himself first to free us, allowing us to have access to such a better life and a better way of things. And then he can set us straight. Jesus died on the cross for us so that we might not face eternal damnation and judgment. He died on the cross for us to set us free. But he also did more than that. While he was walking the earth, he showed us a better way to live. He showed us how to care for one another, how to lift one another up, and how to befriend one another, how to forgive one another, how to look after one another. I believe that if we understand this and get real with our sin and lay it at the feet of Jesus, we will live in a new reality and have our lives turned inside out for the better. 
I want to ask you to give whatever it is that's holding your heart tonight over to Jesus. Lay it at his feet. Lay it at his feet because he is worthy. He is awesome. He cares for you. and He loves you so, so much. God, as we um, come to you tonight, I just ask, Lord, that you would take um, this time together. And I pray, Lord God, that you would seal our hearts with love for one another and love for you, God. I pray that if there's anything in our hearts that's trying to pull us away from your love and from your goodness, that we would recognize it and surrender it over to you. God, I pray for the Nathans in the room. I pray for Nathans to rise up and challenge each other, Lord, that we might receive rebuke, of unconfessed sins in our lives so that we can be made right with you. I pray for boldness in love. I pray for boldness in confrontation in a loving and caring way, not in a malicious and I'm going to get back at you way, but in a loving and caring way because we care for um, our brothers and our sisters, our fellow Christ followers. I pray, Lord God, that you would See us through and and help us, Lord, as we as we walk with you. Lord, help us to lay it lay it all down at your feet tonight. In the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. today's message. For more information about our ministry, visit us on the web at www.xa-unc.com.